time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in flesh. You're very astute, Tom. Have an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. Stay tuned, because it's on now. The Tom Sumner Program. COVID-19 is the biggest health crisis in our lifetime. We're working around the clock with doctors and hospitals to stop it, but we need your help. Even if you don't feel sick, you could be carrying it. And just one person with the virus can infect another 40, who then infect thousands more. So I've issued an executive order requiring everyone to stay home to help limit the spread of the virus. Let's protect the people we love. Stay home and stay safe. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Another five-minute mystery. See if you can solve the case before the end of the program. Well, Alice, one more block and you'll behold the Brooks household. Two whole years, Jim. It just doesn't seem possible it's been so long. You and Dorothy married and with a place of your own? Ah, it's true, all right. Only too bad you haven't taken advantage of the old Brooks hospitality sooner. Well, I'm here now, and I intend on having a perfectly wonderful time. Now here we are. Oh, what a charming place this is. Dorothy's probably on needles and pins waiting for me to get you here. Darling, it's Jim. Here's Alice. Jim, look! What? Where? There, on the living room floor. It's Dorothy, dead. Mr. Brooks, I'm afraid you and Miss Manning will have to submit to some routine questions. I'll be happy to help in any way I can, Inspector. Thank you, Miss Manning. Now, Mr. Brooks, while we're waiting for some information I phoned for, I want you to tell me exactly what happened this morning. Well, there's nothing much to tell. Both my wife and I were quite excited, expecting Alice, that is, Miss Brant- Miss Manning here, to visit us from Chicago. I was to wait until she called me at the office. And you were there all morning? Yes, until Miss Manning's train arrived and we came out here. I had written Mrs. Brooks to tell her that I would call Jim at the office as soon as I arrived. The train was an hour late. Maybe if I had been here earlier, it may have been prevented. Hmm, well, that remains to be seen. Apparently, Miss Brooks was sitting here in this chair putting red polish on her fingernails when she was shot from behind. The polish has spilled all over the carpet, and she was still holding the tiny brush in her hand. She must have recognized her attacker, and since she did not die instantly, she printed these three initials here on the floor with the polish. D-O-C. D-O-C? I wish we could tell whose initials she was trying to reveal. Yes, sure? You don't know anyone whose name would fit that? Positive. I can't. Oh, oh... Yes, Miss Manning, can you think of somebody with those initials? Well, I, I, D-O-C spells Doc, and it's Mr. Brooks's nickname. Why, it can't be. 
Yes, Mr. Brooks. I haven't been called Doc in over two years. It was a nickname I picked up in school. My wife didn't like the name and never used it. No one in New York even knows me by Doc. I've, you've got to believe me, Inspector. It's the truth. Hmm, well, that we'll see. Just a minute. Hello? Yes, Grady? Yes. I see. Well, it's sewed up anyway. Thanks. Well, you both will be happy to know our little murder is solved. Oh, then then it wasn't Doc after all? No, Miss Manning, it wasn't Doc. I'm arresting you, Miss Manning, for the murder of Dorothy Brooks. Why did the inspector arrest Miss Manning for the murder of Mrs. Brooks? In a moment, we'll hear. And now, back to our story. How dare you arrest me? I was still on the train. Your train wasn't late, Miss Manning. That phone call just verified the fact. You came out here, murdered Miss Brooks, returned to the station, and called Mr. Brooks to pick you up. That wasn't what really gave you away, though, Miss Manning. Too bad you didn't know Mr. Brooks was no longer called Doc when you printed those letters on the carpet. The next time you leave a name as a clue to throw suspicion, you'd better get the name right. But of course, there won't be a next time, will there, Miss Manning? Join us again next time for another chance to solve a five-minute mystery. The Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is... um, an author with the uh, Rick Riordan Presents series. Um, she is a, uh, I believe this is a debut novel for a character called Paola Santiago. Uh, the book is The River of Tears, and the author is Taylor K. Maya. And she joins me now by phone. Taylor, did I get through the pronunciations okay? You did, yeah. That was very good. <laughs> Well, I'll, I'm going to be careful if I, if I, uh, if I stumble. Forgive me. Um, but let me ask. Mm-hmm. Let me ask this. I'm, I'm really curious because you're not the first I've had on who has caught the eye of Rick Riordan. How did you? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I actually my my first novel was a young adult that came out last year, and right after we sold that, I heard about the Rick Riordan Prisons imprint and. I grew up a big fan of all the Percy Jackson books, like a lot of us did, I think. And as soon as I heard about it, and the first book in that series is uh, Aru Shaw, and I was so excited about the idea that um, he was providing this space for marginalized authors to write mythology about their own cultures. So I got in touch with my representative, and I was like, this is all I want. (laughs) It's my dream. I want to write for this imprint. And since we were already doing Young Adult back then... um, he was like, you know, let's wait and kind of establish what we're doing now before we do that. But I never forgot about the imprint. And then when the time was better, I was like, okay, now? How about now? <laughs> and so we uh, 
we submitted a proposal to him then. And luckily, Rick grew up in South Texas and was already familiar with the premise of my ghost story. And so, yeah, the rest was kind of history. But it was, yeah, it, from the second I heard of it, I was really excited about the whole concept. Now, now wait a minute. He, Rick Riordan was already familiar with this ghost story. Is it, um, is it a legend in those parts? Yes, yeah, the legend of La Llorona. It's pretty uh pretty ubiquitous. Every every uh Mexican American kid that I know grew up terrified of it. So it was, uh, already has uh, quite a legend to it. And and what part of the country is this in? Uh this is the southwest, so Texas. Um, I think the myth probably originated in Mexico, but yeah, border border areas, especially near bodies of water. Definitely that's where we grew up scared of it. <laughs> And and you now you talk about in the uh, in the book, and maybe this is something you experienced yourself. But um, Paola's mother um, had strict rules not to go near the river because of this ghost. Yeah, definitely. Um, my mom wasn't specifically uh, quite as invested as Pyle's mom when it comes to <laughs> superstitions and ghost stories, but I definitely have friends and grew up with friends and cousins who were not allowed to play near the water. And if they were, they were terrified too anyway. So. Now, I'm, I'm reading a, uh, a liner from the, uh, from the book jacket, and it starts right out, Space-Obsessed Paola Santiago. And her two best friends, uh, Emma and Dante, know the rules. Stay away from the river. Um, space obsessed. How does, from a writer's standpoint, why is the character space obsessed if this is going to be a ghost story? Well, first of all, I wanted to talk about um, just how girls, and especially girls of color, are sort of discouraged from getting into STEM fields in general, even though a lot of us have interest in it from an early age. It's kind of like, it's not as encouraged as it is for our other classmates. And so I wanted to talk about a girl who was, you know, grew up steeped in sort of her culture's mythology, but also who was really interested in more modern stuff and wanted to be involved in science and then also just um you know some of our traditions seem like they're pretty at odds with a more modern society and i wanted to show how pow growing up you know is having this total disconnect between what she's learning in school and what she's interested in and then like the traditions and superstitions that her mom holds and just kind of like how to hold space for both of those things when you're growing up because it can be tough but is this also a way of of setting up um scientific exploration of supernatural yeah definitely i think that's the without you know giving too much away about the plot definitely something that Powell becomes more interested in as it becomes clear to her that her mom's superstitions aren't exactly the uh, outdated nonsense that she thinks in the beginning of the book but but taylor i i, I just couldn't I, I don't want to give away any spoiler alerts but i i just couldn't help noticing that you, you know as i was uh reading the synopsis of the book this space obsessed person confronts a ghost and i and i'm thinking wait a minute that just that just completely left turned at albuquerque <laughs> I, I couldn't literally oh, yeah yeah i couldn't um you know it 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 struck me as this uh, you know is the potential for 
a confrontation of science and supernatural. It's it's kind of built into the DNA of the plot. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was, you know, it's important to uh, to talk about the places where those things kind of butt heads, definitely, because I think Pow, and in the book, too, without also giving too much away, it's um, it's kind of part of how she has dealt with being surrounded by all these ghost stories and scary things growing up is by being like, oh, well, these things are scary, but here's the reason behind them. So she's really interested in, like, the actual dangers of swimming in the river, like cold pockets and hidden currents and stuff like that. She wants to find a reason to be scared of something that doesn't seem like nonsense to her. But then when it comes down to it, yeah, it's it's a little bit science versus supernatural, but it's also a little bit, you know, modern society versus her mom's sort of outdated beliefs. So I can't really get too much more into how she solves the conflict within herself without giving away the book, but it definitely digs it for sure. Well, we don't, we, yeah, like I said, I don't want to give away any spoiler alerts, but um, but I yeah. do want to explore this notion of uh, the, the folktale, La, La Llorona. Am I saying that right? Yeah. Um, how does a, a, a folktale like that follow people from Mexico into the Southwest or other parts of the country? How is it that that's something that, that maybe happened or a, a story that grew out of events in one place follow people to another place? Well, I think when, especially with, you know, immigration and migration and people moving, you have whole communities of people that, you know, south, the Southwest used to be Mexico. <laughs> so I think when the uh, when the border moves, some of the stories stay the same. And then also, I think, you know, as, as a culture, we're fascinated with stories that maybe give us a real heads up about danger. So like a lot of the story of La Llorona is like, you know, be careful near the water, which I'm for kids, which I'm sure, you know, there were, there were, there are real reasons to be careful near the water when you're a kid. So uh, I think just like stories that pose sort of a cautionary tale definitely seem like they are, they linger (laughs) in our cultural identity. But then also, yeah, I think uh, there's definitely something to be said for the tradition of oral storytelling and how we retain culture that way. So people migrating from Mexico or, you know, the U.S. border migrating past them definitely uh, hold on to their cultural traditions by holding on to those stories and passing them down. When and how did you get started writing? Um, I like to say I won a poetry contest when I was in second grade, (laughs) but I think it started before that. Um, I've just always been pretty obsessed with recording what I see and interpreting the world through words. So I started that at a really young age. I remember having a first grade teacher that sent us home with this, like, make your own book kit. And it was my favorite part of elementary school. So I think I've been writing in one way or another ever since then. Um, And then I didn't get started seriously. I had my daughter. um, She's seven now. But I when when she was born, she's, you know, a mix of many races. And I was looking around at just the offerings that were available to her literature wise and not being super impressed with the diversity in kids literature. And so I started um, coming up with story ideas that would, you know, represent my culture and then also kind of be something for her to read when she got older and that's when I got into the world of young adult and middle grade literature and 
kind of got more serious about it. More with young adult novelist Taylor K. Maya. Straight ahead. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Hi, I'm Dr. Jonay Caldoun. We know that COVID-19 is spreading rapidly across Michigan right now. The most important thing people can do to protect themselves is social distancing. That means unless you are a critical infrastructure worker or going out to get food or medicine for your home, you should be staying at home. Stay home, stay safe, save lives. Most of the music you hear on the Tom Sumner program is provided by local artists. Tune in Fridays at 11 for live music and conversation with some of the area's most talented singers, songwriters, and performers. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe Bye from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zondrick. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. This is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Tom Sumner Program, celebrating the rich talent pool from Flint, Genesee County, and throughout Michigan. the 60s, the marches, the beans, the draft card burnings, and best of all, the music. Well, now Apple House has collected the finest of those songs on one album called Golden Protest, performed by the original artists who made them famous. You're thrilled to Society's Child by Janicean, Pleasant Valley Sunday by the Monkees, What Have They Done to the Rain by the Searchers, In the Ghetto by Elvis Presley, Silent Night, 7 O'Clock News by Simon and Garfunkel, and who can ever forget this all-time classic? Yes, it's Barry Maguire's immortal Eve of Destruction. And, of course, my own Masters of War, all for the incredibly low price of $3.95. And if you order now, you'll also receive a treasury of acid rock featuring vanilla fudge, blue chair, frigid pink, Moby Grape, the electric prunes, Jeff Snareplane, Lotharian hand people, to name but a few. Plus, as part of this special limited offer, you also get the best of the supergroups with Traffic, Cream, Blind Faith, Ginger Baker's Air Force, and many, many others. Yes, this is a collector's dream, cold in protest, plus two fabulous 60s albums, all for only $3.95. If you were to purchase these selections separately, they'd cost you hundreds of dollars, and many cannot be found anywhere at any price. Well... 
It's time for my boot heels to be wandering. But here's something that'll tell you how you can get this amazing record package. Here's how to order this amazing record package. Just send $3.95 and check your money order plus your name and address to Apple House Box 70K South Bend, Indiana. Once again, that's $3.95 and check your money to Apple House Box 70 Do it today. Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com This is Jill Stein, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More with young adult novelist Taylor K. Maya. Straight ahead. I don't know if you're seeing it too, but I'm certainly seeing a lot more offerings for young people that are culturally diverse. Um, is, Is the audience newly there for that or has the audience been there all along and and writers and publishers are just beginning to catch up i think it's definitely the latter (laughs) i feel like there's um there's definitely kind of a surge of more culturally diverse stories in the last few years which is really heartening um but i know growing up as a kid from, you know, maybe like a non-default American culture, it was hard for me to find books to read that weren't, that were both, you know, that reflected my culture, but also weren't like an issue book, like, you know, sort of a cautionary tale or like a story about poverty or something really heavy. Um, There wasn't a lot of, you know, fantasy or fun stuff that reflected those cultures. It seemed like those stories weren't for us. And I think you know, that translates into all this terrible stuff, like assuming that kids of color just aren't big readers when maybe there just weren't books that, you know, were catching their interest. So I think now there's publishing is sort of discovering that there's this huge, rabid audience that wants more stories like that that have been there all along and they're just sort of starting to catch up, which is good. We have a long way to go, but we're getting started. Well, you know, you mentioned a default American culture. Um, and that's the first time I've heard anybody use that phrase, and I'm not sure exactly what that is, um, or, or if it still exists, or if if it's changing. What, do you think it's changing? Do you think, uh, um, or or is there still um, this this expectation of what American culture is? Yeah, I think it definitely still exists. I mean, we're we're making progress, but I think. Uh, Honestly, probably, you know, the the default, I would say, and from my experience, just writing books about, you know, Latinx people, it's, uh, it's definitely still the assumption that if you're talking about Americans, you're talking about, you know, straight white people. <laughs> and I think Western Europeans, so basically. Boxes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's a really outdated default, I think, because there's just, like, we have so many different expressions of different cultures in this country, which is, you know, something I think that makes it great. So hopefully, you know, as 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 businesses, publishers start to see that we're hungry for those stories, hopefully, you know, the, the hope is that the media will start to reflect the d- diverse cultural experience in this country, and hopefully, you know, people will start seeing that default differently, and maybe we're taking the first steps, but I definitely think it still exists. Are the feelings and aspirations and experiences of a character like Paola fundamentally different than that of uh, our Western European counterparts? 
No, I, I mean, I think a lot of the, you know, the aspirations and hopes and dreams and stuff are, are they really match up pretty well. The experience is definitely different, though. <laughs> I think um, there are a lot of, you know, there there are more obstacles towards getting to those dreams for a kid like Pau, I think. And the first obstacle really is just, you know, like we were just talking about, maybe not seeing people who look like you in, reflected in your media or seeing them, you know, in positions of huge success. I think it's, you know, it's harder to dream big when you don't see people who look and live like you achieving those dreams, I think. So, yeah, I think she definitely would still have the big dreams, but maybe it's a little harder for her to access them than it is for her Western European counterparts. Do Does um, having and promoting characters from different cultures help those cultures develop self-esteem through a better sense of belonging? I definitely think so, yeah. I've um, I've been lucky enough to go on tour for my, my first two novels, our young adults, so a little bit older audience than this one. And um, yeah, pretty much what I've noticed going on tour and meeting the kids who are reading them is you hear a lot of like, wow, I've never seen a character in a book with a name like mine. I've never met an author from my culture that's writing books at this level. And like, it seems, I mean, it, it's really like, it's both heartbreaking and wonderful because it's like, it's lovely to, you know, give people an example of what that is in, in your books, but also sad that maybe this is the first time they're seeing it. So yeah, I think it's really important to be able to see people like you in your media and that definitely helps with self-esteem the um now you mentioned uh, touring with the book that's got to be a little tough this time around yeah it's definitely different um last year i had my my first novel released in february of last year so i got to do two pretty big tours for that and it was great and then i have i have three books out this year so i was planning on being on the road quite a lot this year and then yeah we're uh, we're pivoting to a different different sort of touring so there's more distant virtual type stuff and i think everyone's just kind of getting used to the process of promoting books without being able to go places in person <laughs> and and how is that happening how how are you able to reach out to readers you um you strike me, Taylor, as, as someone who really enjoys the interaction after the book is out, the, you know, the, the promotion part of it and getting out and meeting people and, and talking to people and getting feedback from people. Um, how, how are you able to do that under these, these pandemic conditions? Yeah, I do. I love that part. Um, it's, you know, it's so strange because you write for years and years and it's just kind of you and the blank page alone in the room. And then once you get the taste of what it's like to go out and talk to people who have actually read the book and kind of, yeah, get that feedback and energy from readers, it's it's hard to go without. It's um, we're, we're doing a pretty good job of using social media. I think I've been able to connect with a lot of readers there. And then my whole, um, this week I'll be doing a bunch of virtual events um, through bookstores so zoom instagram live stuff like that uh so people can interact you know with the chat feature and ask questions and stuff so that's that's it's good but it's not as good <laughs> i'm definitely looking forward to being able to go back out in person um and you said you've got three books this year what what is the writing process like for you taylor how long does it take to knock out a book 
It definitely depends on the book. <laughs> I keep trying to get, I think this, the one I, I just finished the sequel for this book and I think it was my seventh novel. And I think every time I hope that it's going to be more uniform. Every time I think I've unlocked the secret, like, okay, now this is, this is it. We're going to do it just like this every time. But books are more finicky than that. <laughs> I think <laughs> I have some books that like only want to be written between the hours of 9 p.m. and 1 a.m. and some that you can write early in the morning. I had a book a couple of years ago that like only wanted to be written at this certain coffee shop. So I've, I've learned to just kind of like let the book tell me when and where it wants to be written. It's much easier than trying to fight it. <laughs> That's so funny yeah, because somebody... Somebody asked uh, Stephen King one time if he wrote to the muse or to a schedule, and he said, oh, always to the muse, but fortunately the muse shows up every morning at 9 o'clock. Um, <laughs> but you're the first person I've heard describe um, individual books as finicky. And and yeah. having that and having that sense of some books write better in a particular location, um, do you do you outline? Do you come up with characters first, and then what would happen to them, or do you come up with a story and who this would likely happen to? Um, how how do they unfold once you find the place that works best for that particular book? <laughs> once I find the right coffee shop table, yeah, yeah exactly. I, uh... I usually start a book, I, I call it the big what if question. So for this book, it's like, what if <laughs> the ghosts and superstitions we grew up with were actually real and, you know, they could mess with your life and ways that you had to solve problems for. And then after I have my big, you know, what if premise question, that's when I figure out like, okay, who would be the most interesting character to throw into this situation? So for me, it was what if ghosts and superstitions are real? And then what if the person who discovers this is a person who like staunchly does not believe in superstitious nonsense at all? And so like, how does she interact in that world? So yeah, I outline super extensively. Um, my process is usually to do kind of like a first draft slash outline where I just write down like with one sentence every thing that's going to happen in the book. And it's, you know, like 20 pages. And then after that, I usually totally scrap parts of it and update it as I go, but I can't start until I have that kind of like master document of what I naively think the story is going to be about. <laughs> but that is kind of an outline. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I, I'd have to outline. It's a, uh, I've tried to not. I've had, I had a book that was like, nope, we're not going to stick to any outline whatsoever. You're just going to have to figure it out. And I had to stop halfway through and outline the rest. <laughs> I think, I think I'm firmly an outliner for life. I'm I'm always very curious about creativity and the creative process and where that comes from, um, and and most importantly, if it can be taught. Um, what happens for you? How does uh, after you ask the what if question? How is it that the how how does the answer form? Yeah, I think it depends on the book. So it's, you know, sometimes, um, sometimes, I mean, I get, I get a pretty good sense for the world that I want first. So I like to have the character as an entry point, but then I have sort of like, where does this character live? What kinds of other people are there? So I like to build sort of like without the, without the stress of coming up with the plot, sort of build this like area that the character lives, whether that's a world or a town or an apartment. And then, 
come up with, you know, I, I think I go end first. This is funny. I kind of do most of this instinctually, so I don't usually outline how it works, but I usually come up with the character and then I figure out, you know, what would the resolution to the story be? And then I kind of build backwards from there. Like, okay, what are some obstacles that are going to, you know, pop up to this character getting or learning or becoming what they need to be? And then, yeah, I kind of built the story backwards from the ending. And that's interesting. It's it sounds to me like it's a process of of character location, what happens and uh how it all came about. Yeah, yeah, I think plot <laughs> plot is is my toughest thing. I'm always, you know, I I have I always famously say that I that I write 20 pages before the start of the book every time. So I try to write myself <laughs> in and like explain the world to myself, and none of that is interesting to a reader, so it almost always gets cut. It's like scaffolding. <laughs> you got to get to the top to build the thing, but you don't need to read all that. Well, but, but and, and I'm, I misspoke a little earlier. I, I said this was a debut for this particular character, and the phrase I was referring to and remembering was that um, this is your... Uh, uh, what was the phrase they used? I just saw it a minute ago. Uh, debut. Oh, a debut young adult fantasy novel. Um, how many books have you written? I have. I've. I think I've written eight. I have three out. So I have my first. My first young adult fantasy is called We Set the Dark on Fire, and that was out February of last year. And then the sequel came out February of this year. So this is my third novel published but my first time writing for a, like a middle school audience so it's my first first time writing for this age group and what what are what's the target for the other two books they're like high school i think i think they say 14 to 19 so okay. it's just a little older so this this new book um and its sequel that's well on the way is um skews a little bit younger yeah definitely i have a seven-year-old daughter and i read it out loud to her about a month ago and she she liked it i definitely can't read my other books to her so i think that's the cutoff for me is is that the uh the best way to test yeah, it's been great. Honestly, I, I haven't been able to read my older books to her. So this, I mean, she, it was so gratifying. She laughed in all the right places. <laughs> she, and she had opinions about what should happen in the next book. It was great. <laughs> you know, I'm <clears throat> I'm really curious, especially because of uh, the Rick Riordan connection, if um, this is a beginning of a series for Paola Santiago. You said there's yeah, a there's a sequel. Do, do you have a plan for multiple books, or um, did you just get to the end of this one and go, but wait, there's more? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, I really did. I, got, I, I, had the, I set out to write two, and then I got to the end of the second one and kind of got to the, but wait, there's more. So we'll, we'll see how it all shakes out. But guaranteed two, but <laughs> I'm like, uh, I'm... I'm crossing my fingers that there will be more. <laughs> we'll see. But but you're open to the idea of of creating a whole series of adventures for this character. Absolutely. Well, that's fun. I, I I'm always fascinated by how that how that progresses, how it evolves, how it starts from a story about this uh, 
space obsessed kid and uh it it you know turns into you know ongoing adventures it's uh it's fascinating so the second book is uh, completely done or you finished the second book um what does that mean when you finish a book aren't there a whole bunch of things that happen after that yeah, there are. I think that's a common misconception is like getting to, to write the end at the end of your book is when you're done. But that's kind of the beginning. <laughs> Get the first draft down. And then I have a brilliant editor at Rick Riordan presents Stephanie Laurie, who we have now worked on both the books. And so we've done I finished the, the draft, which writing during a pandemic was a whole new <laughs> new beast to conquer. Why? Because you could only and use then, one location? Yeah, I couldn't go to my favorite coffee shop table. Um, And then also uh, wrote it mostly while surprise homeschooling a first grader. So that was new. Yikes. (laughs) Used to having those those school hours where the house is quiet to to focus. But I got some really good noise-canceling headphones, so that helped. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I sent it off to... uh, to my editor and then we did um we did a pretty pretty heavy round of revisions and that's that can you know you can do one to seven (laughs) rounds so i think seven was the most i ever did but yeah it could be infinite rounds of revision you just revise until until it seems right and then it goes off to copy edits where this one is now then you get your grammar nitpicked over and they tell you that rbs wasn't actually a thing until the 1960s or whatever (laughs) (laughs) Copy editors are the unsung heroes of publishing. <laughs> and oh. then after that, you get to lay out and design and all that. And then after all that, you get to finally see a real copy of it, which is my favorite part. So how long before the uh, before the second book is out? It'll be a year, so it'll be this time next year. Okay. And, and uh, have you now, uh, apparently you've already started thinking about... Uh, about part three? Yes, definitely. It's a uh, no guarantee. I always say the uh, the best way to continue uh, a series that you love is to buy the first book. <laughs> That's how they usually decide. So, yes, I'm very hopeful that we'll get to do part three, though. Well, the... Um, what was it? I was, I was just going to ask something, and it went right out of my head. Um, with... <laughs> With a, uh, a, a series, oh, I know what it was. Um, are you working on other things or have you full time, have you become full time devoted to these characters in this series now? No, I'm actually doing doing another series right now too. Um, I'm I just finished my first young adult series, and then I have a uh, sort of an unannounced. <laughs> the first this is the first time anyone's hearing about it. Uh, a new young adult project that I'm working on that I can share absolutely no details about, but <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> definitely happens. So I'm bouncing back and forth between a book for older high school age kids, and then working on the POW books too. So. Bouncing back and forth a little bit, which is nice. I like to have the variety. <laughs> well, that <laughs> was just bounce to the other one. Taylor, that was a great tease. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I'm like, hopefully, I'll be able to share more soon. We always joke in publishing that that's the. Uh, it's like 
most of publishing is getting really, really good news and then having to keep it a secret for six months. <laughs> That's basically how it goes. I think that happens in Hollywood, too. Um yeah. <laughs> and that's another thing. Would you like to see these characters on the on the screen, big or small? Oh, I would love it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's like everyone's bucket list. Maybe not everyone's. Definitely one of mine. I would love, love, love to see it. TV well, or movie. It could go either way. I, yeah, I think uh, um, some writers are a little bit concerned about giving over editorial control to somebody else, but, but others are just... Um, really excited when their characters uh, come to life on a, on a screen or, um, like I say, in a movie theater or on television, Netflix, whatever. Um, unfortunately, yeah. Taylor, I'm having so much fun talking with you, but we're, we're out of time. Um, but I always give that guests... So it did go fast. Um, <laughs> and I feel like we could talk a lot more. I'm, I'm fascinated about... Uh, about your ideas and and uh, uh, about your take on uh, on what kinds of stories need to be told and and we could talk a lot more about that but here's what I always do for uh, guests on the show I always give them an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you about the books that you've already written what's coming up and so on do you have a website I do, yep. It's com. That's my website. And then I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at TaylorK. Well, this has been great. Taylor, thanks so much for spending this time with me. I appreciate it very much. Yeah, thank you so much. This was super fun. <laughs> All right. Take care. You too. That was um, Taylor K. Maya. Uh, the book is uh, Plow... Paola Santiago and the River of Tears. And it's um, in, in some ways uh, being presented by Rick Riordan, often dubbed the storyteller of the gods. Um, he's, uh, he, he's been getting behind people that are writing stories for um, diverse audiences and it's kind of an interesting project that he's taken on but it has also uncovered some great talent like taylor anyway with that we're going to take a short break and we'll be back with more of the tom sumner program straight ahead
$2 million in $100 bills. As always, if any member of your CIA force is caught or killed, the President will disavow any knowledge of your activities. This administration will self-destruct in 16 months. Good luck, Howie. Tom Sumner, Program.com The Tom Sumner, Program.com Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner Program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Do you have feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila Tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular doses, you can overcome any obstacles that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, table dancing, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not, is a major factor in dancing like a retard, may cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them, also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at four in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people, and it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. Alcohol may cause pregnancy, and it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila! Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the bath. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. The interest of goodwill. The Hoffman Beverage Company feels compelled to make this announcement. It's simply this. 
All Hoffman flavors have that happy taste, except sarsaparilla. We might as well come right out with it. We haven't quite hit that happy, carefree note in sarsaparilla. Now, please don't misunderstand us. Our Hoffman sarsaparilla is absolutely dependable. It's trustworthy. It's loyal. And many fine, upstanding citizens love it. But it just isn't what we call happy. You take our Hoffman orange. It's absolutely rollicking. Our lemon is almost giggly. Our black cherry and black raspberry are so bubbling with happiness, they dance in the glass. They all have natural flavor and famous Hoffman steady sparkle. We're sorry about Hoffman sarsaparilla. Why isn't it happy? Well, let me ask you, could you be happy if your this name This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. John Henry was a little baby, sitting on his daddy's knee. He picked up a hammer and a little piece of steel and said, "Goo goo 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 goo." That's not the, that's not the right verse. He was only six months years old. Wait, cut it. Six. Tommy, the real, the ethnic. You know the real version of John. When John Henry was a little baby, sitting on his daddy's knee. Daddy picked him up, threw him on the floor, said, this baby's done wet on me. <laughs> I, I, I apologize. Oh, one more chance. One more chance is all you get. See this pin? It says, think ethnic. You gotta think ethnic and sing ethnic to ever earn this pin. When John Henry was a little baby, sitting on his daddy's knee, he picked up a hammer and a little piece of steel and said, This hammer be the death of me, Lord, Lord, hammer be the death of me. Yeah, when John Henry was just a little tyke, he picked up a piece of steel and a hammer. It seemed like he knew all the time, down deep inside, that he was going to work on the railroads. And there was a big story waiting for him to arrive on. While his little boy used to go around hammering on things, his daddy bought him a little hammer. Let's go around hammering the tables and hammering the fixtures. (laughs) We used to get a licking all the time. We'd go up and hammer on the front door. Hammer on the chairs. Yet as John Henry grew, he grew in size, and he grew in stature, and he grew in his mind, his horizons grew. He started going out and got a bigger hammer. Started walking around town hammering things. Hammering trees, people's fences, fire hydrants. While John Henry could just go around hitting one fire hydrant with one whop, whop. Yeah. 
All dogs in town hated John Henry. <laughs> well, the whole story goes is that when he grew to full size, he could drive steel on the railroad, drive those spikes in the ground faster than any ten men. People started talking about John Henry. Why he's the fastest man that ever drove steel on the railroad. And the whole story of John Henry really starts the day the captain told John Henry something. John Henry said, tell me something, captain. <laughs> then the captain said, John Henry, I'm gonna bring me a steam drill round. I'm gonna bring me a steam drill out on the job. I'm gonna pop that steel on down, Lord, Lord, pop that steel on down. Sure enough, next day they had a steam drill out on the job. Big red steam drill, shiny smokestack sticking up in the air. Well, they had old John Henry over there. Muscles rippling in the sun, sweat running off in gimlets. Ringlets. Well, the captain, head of all the railroad workers, looked over at that steam drill and smiled. Then he turned over and he looked over at John Henry. With his beady little eyes. He snarled over John Henry. Hi there, John. <laughs> well, John Henry didn't say nothing. Just spit on his hands, picked up those two nine-pound hammers. Walked slowly over towards that steam drill. Spit on the steam drill. Then went over and spit on the captain. <laughs> so it got to be about 12 o'clock starting time for the race. Every railroad man in the county was out there that day because they knew if John Henry lost that race, they were all out of a job. But it got to be starting time for the race. John Henry is up there at that starting line. That steam drill was up there at that starting line. Big smokestack sticking right up in the air. A little bit of spit on it. <laughs> well, the captain walked up to the start line. I swear you could hear a pin drop that day. He took out his pistol and pointed up in the air. John Henry spit on it. Actually, this was about the greatest race in the history of man. The race between a man and a machine. He pointed that pistol up in the air and shot it off. Bang. That started that race. Wop, 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 wop. 
I'm smart, I thought he could be a steam drill. What a thing for crying out loud. John Henry said to the captain, to the captain, by God I ain't no fool. Before I'll die with a hammer in my hand, I'm gonna get me a steam drill too, Lord, Lord. Get me a steam drill too. Get me a steam drill too, Lord, Lord. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. Hey there, I'm Michigan Governor Gretchen Wetmer. Might surprise you to be hearing from me, some smoke show Midwestern governor nobody heard about till a couple weeks ago. But governors are kind of having a moment right now. And while other govs get cool nicknames like Daddy Cuomo and Gavin Choke Me King Newsome, Trump refers to me as that woman from Michigan. But I'm not offended because I am proud to be from Michigan. And that woman is also what Trump calls his wife. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm. And yeah, yeah, I'm nursing all the bats because... Even though most frickin' governors are laying down restrictions because of the virus, mine are somehow too far. Now, you may have heard about the protesters that gathered in the streets of our capital for Ted Nugent cosplay last week. Look, people, it's live free or die, not live free and die. And Trump advisor Stephen Moore is comparing these protesters to Rosa Parks. Yeah. If Rosa Parks was fighting for her right to get hit by a bus. Sorry, that's a little bats talking. But I support all Americans and Michiganders' freedom of speech. So if you got to protest, here are some tips on how to do it safely. Number one, stay home. I promise you can call me a bitch from the safety of your couch. It's called Twitter. So if you must head outside, maintain proper social distancing. That means six feet apart at all times. So if the tip of your AK-47 can touch the tip of your buddy's AK, back up. And please, wear face masks, but not a joker mask. And not a clown mask and absolutely no masks that come with the hood. Now, like you, I have heard the rumors that I'm on the short list to be Joe Biden's vice president. 
the VP's Veep. Because if it's going to be a woman, it might as well be that woman. But my sole priority is my home state. Because we're not out of the woods. We never will be. We live in Michigan. And to anyone that stands in the way of the health and safety of my constituents, I'll remind you, the Michigan is a mitten, right? And this, this is where I live. Oh, dang it, they're throwing dog crap at my door. Knock it off! I'll throw it back! I did it last time, too! You know I will! Hi, I'm Alexander Zanjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner.